Hey everybody, welcome to the Cinema Nerd Presents Made in the 90s. I'm Kyle. I'm Dylan Shore. And we're going to talk this week about LA Confidential. What else can we say? Yeah, great movie. Yeah, great. I mean, great movie. It, it's thoroughly a great movie. Mm-hmm. Not one dull minute. And nothing like, out of place. And yeah. So yeah, everything is very precise. Oh, I can't wait to get into it. <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm also pretty stoked about it also. Before we get into LA Confidential, Dylan, what have you been watching lately? Uh, so I've been uh, making my way through downtown. Uh, <laughs> no, making my way are you, are through. Homebound? Yeah. Uh, making my way through a little British series called Taskmaster. What is it? It's a panel show. So there's five British comedians. Uh, there's one girl that's Canadian that was on it too, but uh, she does a lot of stuff in the UK. Her name's Catherine Ryan. But uh, the show is ran by Alex Horn. He's a comedian, and he plays the Taskmaster's assistant. And the Taskmaster himself is Greg Davis, another UK comedian. And they have their panel just do the most ridiculous tasks. Like... And it's just about seeing how their brains work, essentially. And it's so fun, and it just brings so much joy. (laughs) It's very easy to watch. I like it a lot. All right, I'll have to give it a look. It's broadcasting on Dave here locally. So Dave is the channel, yeah. I highly recommend seasons two, four, and seven is a really good one. Series seven has James A. Caster in it. I don't know if okay. you know who that is. Yeah, yeah, dude. I watched his uh that that cycle of three yeah, that he on, had on Netflix recently. Brilliant stuff. Really, really, okay. really good. Start with series seven. Okay. Okay. Because okay. you know James A. Caster. So that'll be a great introduction into the show. Totally. Yep. yep. I'm I'll go right there. So Taskmaster season seven. All right, yep. I'm into it. What else? Anything else? I think that's it. Yeah, I haven't rewatched anything else crazy. Okay. Um, I've been catching up on Ozark. I hear that's good. Now in its third season, I'm halfway through the first season. And yeah, it's good, you know. Nice. Yeah, I I like Jason Bateman a lot. And I do I too. I just haven't watched the show yet. It's good. You know, if you're I it's it's good. I'm I have such an interesting relationship with television. Because I will, I know we're in the golden age and everything, but I will just totally bail on a show, even if it's really good, you know? Yeah. If I kind of stop watching it for more than a day, I'll, I'll never get back to it. Yep. A like, lot of them are just, like, commitments. Like, I don't know, like, I've, I, don't get me wrong, this is the time of year that I watch TV shows, actually. It's usually the first half of the year that I watch TV shows, and then the last half, there's just so many movies that are coming out that I want to see. That I that usually takes over my time, but now with this quarantine, I guess I'll be watching more TV shows. We'll see. Um, I, I I've talked about it on the filmography side, but if you're looking for a weird TV show to watch, are you familiar with The Magicians? Have you watched any of that? No. It's a sci-fi show. It's got five seasons, and it's like Harry Potter but horny. It's. <laughs> I don't. Um, that doesn't 
kind of appeal to me. I like Harry Potter, but I don't know if I want to see them horny. Um, it's, so wait, it's literally like like a high school show, but at Hogwarts? Like a college. It's like if, if Harry Potter was a CW show, but it's just on sci-fi. But okay. The, the vibe okay, of it you is... Know what? Like, I'm actually a little more interested now. It's, <laughs> I'm, it's, a, I'm, I'm intrigued. It's a lot of fun. And it's a, it's a great show, especially in this environment. If you're doing like other things and you just want something where every time you look up, they're talking about like flipping the switch that turns on magic again, or they're in a neon colored rave, or there's a giant goat creature talking about little cakes. It, it's just unbridled <laughs> insanity. So it's a lot of fun. Okay. Okay. Um, I watched The Pelican Brief. Did we talk about that one? No, we didn't. That's a 90s movie. It is a 90s movie. It's uh, a very long movie. It's like it's two and not, a half. Yeah, it, my last watch of that, it's been a while. It's been a very long time, but I think I was at least, had to have been like when I was like 21. And it felt so slow. And it, I don't know. I don't think it's a, a great movie. It's Schumacher, isn't it? I'm, you know what? Let me take a look. It's definitely not a great movie. It is slow. It's got some pacing problems. It also has some sort of like, yeah, I guess it's pacing stuff because yeah, like, Denzel okay. gets introduced early and then is not there for most of the movie. And then he shows up for the third act, but not the actual end of it. And it, yeah, it's a little bit of a of a mess i didn't love it and the direction also is like let's see alan j pakula pakula oh okay it's not schumacher my fault sorry joel yeah joel gets off for that one he does have a lot of bad movies but he's also got quite a bit of good film uh we're gonna uh, talk a lot of schumacher on this show i guarantee you well, we will get into Batman Forever and Robin. <laughs> and we'll do it without talking about nipples. That's the only time we mention bat nipples is here and now. No, or we'll mention it. <laughs> so anyways, I also watched The Incredibles 2, which at the time I found it really entertaining and I was in for it. But right now, if you asked me what it was about or... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You know, I, I liked my time with it, but it kind of, maybe it's just a superhero thing. Yeah, it's not the first one. The first one's really well done. I really love the first one, you know, but that's been like 10 years is the reason I couldn't tell you anything about it at this point. And I really like Brad Bird. I, like I said, I was thoroughly entertained and had a really good time with the movie. And, and then I just was, I couldn't tell you a thing about it. But mm -hmm. I also rewatched Coco. Um, nice. And that movie. Loco. So, we're declared the No, it's a, great I, movie. a beautiful movie. I love that movie, and I don't need to say anything else about it. It's wonderful. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't think I have anything else on my list that I rewatched. Yeah, no, no, no. Nope. All right. Well, let's talk about L.A. Confidential, Dylan. This was your pick. Yes. Uh, so what is your relationship with this? Why, why, why? You know, I, I just, I do really love this movie. I remember renting it a lot as a kid. I uh, don't know why this movie would interest me as a kid, but it, it always has. Uh, you got a streak for 
hyper-violent crime movies, especially high-key kind of like bright light, big cinema. And this is a movie movie, you know? It's it is. A- it also might have been like my first... Now that I'm thinking about it, I feel like this might have been my first real introduction to old Hollywood. And that probably started my fascination with old Hollywood and part of the reason why I moved here. Right on. Okay. I I mean, I get that. I'm trying to think of what that movie or moment might have been for me, but nothing's springing directly to mind. Honestly, for me, it's television. And so that's why I was saying I have such a strange relationship with television. Mm-hmm. I moved to LA to be in, in television and then I've kind of lost patience for it. Like we've talked about where it's like, I don't know, man, 200 episodes, wait, 13 episodes, uh, six episodes, you know, <laughs> some of these British shows are great for that. Cause it's, you can digest the entire thing in like a day. Mm-hmm. But so I, I'm, switched my entire focus to watching more movies just because I find them more digestible and more enjoyable as sort of one-off tell me this story. Um, so it's interesting to hear you say that this movie is the movie that brought you to Hollywood because it is a very Hollywood movie. It is. I, I mean, <clears throat> I hadn't fully thought about that until you asked me that question, but like, yeah, no, I think this was, I saw this, right when it came out on video so 90 it came out 97 so I assume video was 98 right around in there and man there's just something about it that fucking drew me in all the starlets and the neon lights and just the whole vibe of it yeah it it was a crazy introduction to the world of Los Angeles but it kind of set me up for what it it is. It's not a pretty thing. <laughs> no. And as <laughs> DeVito says in the intro, it's not too original because, hey, it's Hollywood. But like yep. you mentioned, it is beautiful. The lighting is gorgeous the entire way. The blocking is beautiful. The camera movements are evocative. The continued motif of the mirrors reflecting back, the one-way mirrors becoming like six-way mirrors. Everybody's looking at each other. Everybody's questioning each other. I, at several different points of this movie, I was just like, who directed this thing? And it's Curtis Hansen, right? Yep. Yes, sir. This thing, and he was nominated for an Academy Award for this movie. Well-deserved. He probably deserved it. I don't know what he lost against or what else was up that year. I don't either. Um, I, I should look that up, but yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, I'll take a look at it here in a second. But he directs the hell out of this movie. I mean, it 100%. just is entirely in control the whole way so for me i'll back up a step before we really start unpacking it. my relationship with this movie is i certainly didn't see it in the 90s and probably didn't see it until the mid 2000s and then once again you know probably during film school and then once again you know so i've seen this movie maybe four or five times in my life and i've always enjoyed this movie but never really dug in and watched it and actively watched it. Cause it's kind of been one of those, oh yeah, this is one of those two and a half hour crime movies and it's a good movie and everybody's in it. So I'll watch that, but it's not really dissecting it or digesting it. And I'm, I'm really glad that I watched it carefully cause it's almost impeccable. Like it's kind of a perfect movie. I don't know. It's oh, yeah, so good yeah. at what it's doing, man. 
it's his masterpiece in my Easy. from his dis, uh, from his filmography for sure although eight mile eight mile man i love it makes a lot more sense in there now doesn't she <laughs> absolutely uh, yeah so where do we start should we dive in dive into the plot of this um i want to start with a note right off top uh which is the kevin spacey thing just to say that i'm i because i want to talk about kevin spacey in the context of this movie and yes you know, know about, well i'm sorry we all know he's a piece of shit for what he did so yes, we're not trying to defend his actions in any way we're here to talk about his performance in this movie because it's so good it's really good right I think it's one of the his death scene spoilers, but we are getting into heavy spoilers here. His death scene is, I think, one of the best deaths ever on camera. It's a good death, and it it goes with everything that this movie is doing, which is it's a little bit keyed up, but it's still really believable. Everybody's a human being, but they're in just this world that is heightened by like eight percent you know what i mean like 6.25 percent dialed into such a degree of believably heightened that when he says rollo tomasi tomasi rollo tomasi you're like oh shit i know what he's doing and you're with him instead of like what the <laughs> fuck is happening right now who is yeah. rollo tomasi but you know who it is and you know guy knows and uh yeah so anyways so off the top, yeah, we, uh, we're going to dismiss the shitbaggery that is Kevin Spacey and uh, talk about this movie phenomenologically. How about that? Okay, so moving on to people who only play monsters on TV, I do want to talk about Danny DeVito. Cool. Yeah, we can start with him because he starts us into the movie. Yeah, great. He's a really good actor. 100%. I think his... Director too. What's that? I think he's a great director too. People don't recognize him for his directing, and I think he's brilliant. What does he deserve to, uh, recognition for as a director? War of the Roses. Okay. Fucking brilliant movie. If only it was '90s. I think it's '89. It's uh, so good. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and then <clears throat> you might have a different opinion on this, but Death to Smoochie is one of my personal favorites. I like Death to Smoochie. I'm a defender. Okay. That's DeVita. Yeah, okay, right on. Yeah, cool, because I like that. Okay, cool. Yeah, I think he's super talented. I uh, watched an episode, speaking of TV and the monster that he is on television, I watched an episode of Always Sunny recently. It's the episode... Uh, he's, a, he's a friendly monster. He's, well, I mean, yeah, we don't need to unpack what Always Sunny represents. but He's like, know. what's the Sesame Street character that's in a trash can? Oscar. <laughs> yeah, that's him. Sure. <laughs> but there's, uh, it, the episode that I watched is Mac Finds His Pride, whatever. It's the one that culminates in the dance scene in prison. Yeah, brilliant. It's brilliant. And DeVito is amazing in that episode. That whole episode is amazing and he's incredible in it. And he's incredible in this thing. He can, he's working the like, the weirdo old timey slang because you buy him as a caricature of a human. But he also, you know, especially when it gets to that scene where he, he gets the 
chair torn up from the floor out from under him, the mm-hmm. fear and the, the humanity, the pathos that he conveys is, you know, heart-wrenching. He's mm-hmm. just I wonder if it was like some real fear because he's such a little man. He's very mm-hmm. small in stature. And all of those guys surrounding him are giants. Huge. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so, okay, they are all giants. They're huge, huge people physically. They're also, every single person in this movie is a movie star. So I want to... Well, this is before they even become movie stars. Is that true? Yeah, Russell Crowe had, he had like definitely a couple Australian films under his belt, but nothing like of recognition. And then he had one other movie before this one here in America. And I'm blanking. It's the Sam Raimi film, Quick and the Dead, I believe. It's a Western. It's a very... With um, early Leo and Sharon Stone? Yep. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I think that was right before LA Confidential. And so he started filming, the, uh, they did this, and Guy Pierce, I think this was his first American movie. Really? I, I'm not 100%. I didn't get a chance to research it, but I think this was his first. What's the budget of this movie? Do you know? Oh, it's got to be in the high, high, high millions. I want to say 100 million. Okay, so then where is that going? Just because it's like all, all that. 35 million. 30, wow, Curtis Hansen knew how to fucking make a movie on a budget. That's well, impressive. So another thing I was thinking since we're back on Curtis Hansen is he really leverages the exteriors in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. He uses buildings that are all there and just throws a few old cars driving around the road. Yeah, no, no, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I didn't mean to Mostly cut you off. It's all just period stuff that still exists in this city. And he's using areas of the city that like, you know, when you drive through that area towards Midtown, like between Wilshire and if you're, is it Normandy? Like between Wilshire and Third, where it gets really kind of like wavy. And anyway. oh, like on Wilshire? No, it doesn't matter. This is bad podcasting. But there's an area of Los Angeles that he shoots in that's, right in the middle of Los Angeles. And unless you had a reason to drive down that street, you wouldn't know it was there, but it looks like it did 50 years ago because it looked, because that's how it is. Mm -hmm. And he really does a great job shooting those exteriors all around this city. Yeah, like I wonder how much they, uh, comparing it to like what Tarantino just did with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Like he, I wonder if it was that scale of a production, like if he had to shut down so many roads and like uh, like I can speak from when they shot Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, like it was kind of chaotic trying to get around Hollywood because they had so many streets blocked off for what they were doing with their actual production design. Even like a week before shooting, they were kind of starting to shut stuff down to get the production there and so i'm curious if he had to do a lot of that for this because it doesn't feel like it feels like he found all the old places and didn't have to this is what i'm saying anything this is what i'm saying and so i actually had this question while i was watching it i'm glad you're still right there but is the frolic room is still right there next to the pantages right yep literally two blocks away from my apartment so he he just shoots just the frolic room in the Pantages. Just, just that, that, man. 
And he shoots inside the frolic room as well. Well, sure. But I, and again, talking about the exteriors of this movie, gotcha. he's very, very economical. Yeah, um, I'm sure if you were to just pan the camera right around, there would be the Vine train there station. There would be PAs with yeah. <laughs> their walkie-talkie going, no, I know, he won't stop. He won't stop. I'm, try I'm trying. I'm trying. Kevin Spacey. <laughs> <laughs> oh man no he so anyways curtis hansen deserved an oscar i'm glad he got nominated uh, um also i want to shout out janine opwell Oppelwell. i'm sorry for mispronouncing that but she's a production designer of this movie and i don't feel like production designers get enough love in the industry and in the conversation but they're a huge part of why movies look the way that they do and Definitely. this movie looks amazing from the location scouting to the costuming. To what was her name again? Janine Opwell or Opwell. It is spelled O-P-P-E-W-A-L-L. Sorry. Gotcha. Yeah, no, big, big props to her. Like uh, all her interior decorating is just gorgeous. Yeah, really, man. And uh, <laughs> every single jacket that Kevin Spacey wears is the white so one with like cool the, with like the fluffiness on it though uh he's wearing this video yeah <laughs> oh, yeah curly swirly dylan and i are both just like touching our shoulders <laughs> yeah tickling <laughs> our own shoulders <laughs> yeah this movie looks great so okay i've been, that leads me to another question and it is a little more specifically about what we're doing here in terms of the 90s um, actually, just before that, I want to shout out one more thing, which is the Kim Basinger intro and that cloak that she's wearing, still okay. talking about the production design and the costuming and the way this movie looks. It's such a movie star intro. It, whatever. It, it, it all it, the, he introduces her very much. It's obviously not a silent film, but she has no dialogue at first when she first enters, and it feels very much like uh, an old time silent film, how she enters and almost how the Veronica Lake, the, her alter ego lookalike, uh, uh, who she's trying to portray as the prostitute. Right. Yeah. So yeah, exactly. And that's something that this movie does also really well is that kind oh, of. Oh, you know what? She does have a line first, doesn't she? It's off well, screen. talking to the liquor store clerk, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. You're, you're right. I'm thinking of just a shot. Uh, my fault, my fault, my fault. No problem. Okay, so, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I guess we kind of talked about it in terms of these people weren't necessarily huge movie stars at this time. Basinger was, and I'm pretty sure that's why she's front and center on the cover. Sure. He was definitely doing work. Wasn't he? Who? Spacey. Oh, yeah. Wasn't he? Yeah, of course. Yeah, he was yeah, like yeah. Glengarry Glen Ross was before that. And yeah. Um, I'm sure many others that we'll, we'll get around to. Yeah, that, I mean, the, it feels just like bangers all the, all the way through it. And obviously, uh, James Cromwell, who we'll get to later. Uh, anyways, before we get too far down that road, I wanted to get back to this point. Oh, my goodness. So, sorry. If you can hear that sound in the background, it's 8 p.m. here in London. And I'll just, just a little bit like this. Sorry, guys, I'll try not to peep that too much. 
but we, oh, okay. we, we clap for the NHS because of uh, solidarity and staying alone together. Everyone's clapping out there? Yeah, yeah, banging pots and pans and driving down the street and honking horns and waving flags and it's, it's a big whole thing, yeah. It's, uh, I hear it. Yeah, it's, it's pretty cool. NHS, it's a, a, a good thing. And I'm going to take this opportunity and pour a little wine. Do it. Give these guys a cheer. Damn, I wish it was late enough so I could drink. <laughs> <laughs> I already had two cups of coffee. I'm like, fuck, I want a glass of wine. That sounds nice. <laughs> it's fucking noon. develops a drinking problem. You know what? Dude, there, solidly, last week, I was drinking every day. Yeah, when, when I was just—I was, I mean, it wasn't day; it was every night. Essentially, I would fucking start drinking around like five o'clock. Have uh, be writing a little bit, chain smoking cigarettes. Ugh, I was doing. Ugh, it was just a lot. Oh yeah, glad to be off the cigarettes, but I've definitely been smoking too much weed. Oh yeah, I smoke a lot. Yeah, of that, the first week, like the, also the first week of the lockdown here was the week of or after my birthday. So I, just as a matter of timing, had like six bottles of really nice whiskey in the house that were oh. gifts from various people and whatever. So I drank a lot of whiskey week one. Yeah, I'll be spending my birthday in quarantine. Yeah. When's your birthday? May 10th. Oh, wow. Coming up, buddy. Yep. All right, so let's let's jump back into this thing. As sloppily as I'm getting into it, I wanted to talk about this movie in sort of the context of the 90s because it is fascinating how bright and high key and snappy it is, which, so I'm trying to say two things at once. This movie, I'm trying to say three things at once. <laughs> um, I feel like if this movie were made in the 40s, I wouldn't bat an eye at it. I feel like if this movie were in black and white, it would, it would feel basically the same. Mm -hmm. So it has the snap and energy of some of those, not like bringing up baby type scripts, but that kind of pop that those noir scripts did, had, you know? Like really stylized dialogue, really stylized yeah. dialogue. And, but seeing it in full color makes it feel i don't know less because okay I, again trying to say too many things let me ask a question is this a new a noir movie yeah uh 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 yes could it be yeah no it's a noir i was gonna say is it neo-noir but no it feels because it's not um right it's not contemporary to the time that yeah. it was made it's it's a a period piece to the 90s even mm -hmm. it's set right in case we need to say this for some reason it's set in the what the late 40s or early 50s early 50s yeah um so if it were made if this story were being made at the time that the story is being told about it would just sorry for snapping it would set right in it would feel very very natural but seeing it in this high key seeing people that I recognize today to be movie stars that I'm a fan of. Yeah. It is 
a really exciting experience. I don't know if it, it's not jarring, but it, there's something about the, the, the grandiosity of this thing that really moves me. And one of the reasons I love 90s movies is I think it's kind of the last time that bigness happens, right? We still have studio films today, but they're Marvel movies, right? To, to just kind of broadly define, they're franchise movies. And this was a big ass movie, a big old movie star making movie about movie stars on the big screen. And we don't make movies like that. That when, when was the last time you saw a movie like this? We once upon a time, fair enough. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that, that's it. Yeah, sorry for the people listening. I just showed Kyle my one sheet poster of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Through the magic of panning. Yes. Uh it definitely uh totally different movies, obviously. Like I consider Once Upon a Time in Hollywood a a buddy film. Like it yeah, sure. it's a hangout buddy movie. Sure with like uh the manson family just kind of tucked in there and the <laughs> the whole sharon tate story but la confidential is totally on its own i don't think there there was another one right after this i don't think it was the 90s though it might be early 2000s it's called maholan falls oh, and it uh, uh nick nolte um oh man Jennifer Connelly? Uh, sorry, blanking on it, but get, getting off subject. It's not as good as LA Confidential, but it's in the same spirit and is entertaining. Okay. I remember watching it and then that, again, probably around the same time this one came out. I definitely saw that one later in life. Uh, probably when I was like 18, like right around the time I moved here. Yeah, it's, it's, chalk it up to a movie that I know I've seen. It is Jennifer Connelly and Chaz Palminteri and Michael Madsen and Chris Penn and Melanie Griffith. Yes, and it's John a big Malkovich? What? And yes. Bruce Dern? What is this movie? Yep, 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 yep. What year is it? Uh, 2009, no, 1996. It was before LA Confidential. Apparently. Whoa, no way. We should watch this movie. Huh. Directed by Lee Tamahori. Yeah, we could, yeah, a little companion piece to LA Confidential. Hmm. All right, anyways, so, so yeah. uh, to the larger point here is why I want to do the show, why I'm glad you want to do the show. The reason that I love 90s movies is that it's this cross section between old Hollywood and new Hollywood. Because the indie scene had really started to take hold in the early to mid 90s, uh -huh. studios were not only like clamping down and trying to control what they had, they were also willing to take more and more risks. So you get wild big movies in the 90s that end up being backed by studio money. Uh -huh. And that's pretty cool. And you just don't see stuff like this anymore unless. Quentin Tarantino's making it. Can you imagine pitching <laughs> this movie today? I don't know. It just doesn't get made. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. Um, Good time to be alive. Glad I got to watch movies in the 90s. 100%.
Okay. Uh, actor performance piece, uh, Basinger and Crow are electric from the start, man. They just have more chemistry than I thought human beings could have with each other. <laughs> I would say, uh, even though it's a little more forced by Guy Pierce, but even Guy Pierce and her connection is very uh, real. It feels absolutely kind of makes it, he like forces it onto her a little bit, but she does like him. He definitely is being very, very forceful. Well, and she, she's being manipulated by uh, Pierce, right? Not Guy Pierce, but the character, right? So that she, she's playing a role in that at that point. So unfortunately, that's the position that she's in. Then, but she feels bad in the end. Well, yeah, she feels bad. She feels bad for a lot of things. Um, I just like, and I, I agree with you that I think the character read and the play that Basinger is giving it is that she's fucking hot for it also. But I don't want to just like brush past the fact that she doesn't have any option there. Fair. Fair. Um, oh, also, one more performance thing is Cromwell. Dudley. Dude, I would watch So here's something, this reaction I kept having through the movie is I want to watch the prequel of Dudley rising to power. I want to watch like The Wire, but about Dudley, right? Mm -hmm. And then I realized, at, but not until the last damn scene of this movie, that that is what I'm watching. But Guy Pierce is becoming Dudley. This movie's really good. Mm-hmm. Yep. And it's all just kind of a cycle, people getting to the top in a way. Do you have a favorite uh, Dudley-ism? Boyo. <laughs> if you hear Boyo from Dudley, you are in a bad, bad way. I like when he tells uh, Spacey, <laughs> Vincennes, when he tells him to, what is it? The line is something like, don't don't try to be good now. You don't have enough practice or not enough practice. He delivers it so much better, obviously, because he's James Cromwell, but it, Cromwell. it's a good line. Uh, uh, what's your favorite scene? Boy, um, I don't, let's see. I'm going to call out a couple of scenes. I, I wouldn't call this my favorite scene, but it, it impacted me and I want to talk about it, I guess. But when, we get to the bathroom at the night owl and there is a pile of bodies that is shockingly violent like Definitely. horrifically saw level you know the collector gruesome it, it yep. is covered in blood and there is a literal pile of bodies that's nutso man and so for as flashy and as fun as this movie is it punches hard in every direction. It does not shy away from how ugly that is. 100%. Yeah. 100% for some reason. Unfortunately, my other favorite scene is any time Jack Vincennes is wearing a jacket. <laughs> the whole movie. The whole movie. <laughs> every scene. Uh, yeah, no. Uh, yeah. All of his scenes are amazing. All of Kevin Spacey's scenes are great. Uh, from his pretty uh, oh, his introduction. I got one more. Sorry, it's the it's the it's the bro go for it the good cop bad cop moment at the end between Pierce and Russell Crowe. I was watching it earlier today and I like literally laughed out loud by myself in my living room 
at the arc that Pierce goes through and how ready you are for him to let Russell Crowe off the chain and how Russell Crowe is now looking for him because of the respect. And I don't know, it's a total bro-y movie, but it, it's also really good. It's so good. It, it works. Very, very good. All right, my favorite scenes. Uh, this first one is actually the whole sequence and how it unfolds. So the interrogation of the black men and him bouncing back and forth from rooms. And oh, that, that great scene. You know what? That's like, it's a great scene. It's so much fun to watch. It's great filmmaking. Like that is, this guy deserved the Oscar. It's incredible. Totally. Yep. Uh, but so starting there and un learning about the girl mm -hmm. that uh, is tied up in the room in Bunker Hill, I think. And the and questions that keep building up. Also, because you have that moment when you're when they first get to the guy's house and they find the the maroon coupe or whatever it is, and they just left the shotguns in the back of the car. Like I'm not a criminal, but if I did crimes, I wouldn't just leave my crime tools on the back seat of my car. Well, he didn't really do it. Cut, yeah, obs. Yeah, those those other cops. You little asshole. <laughs> He's talking about cops. Hey, not a cat, I think. Yeah, he just what a dick. He just stuck his paw all the way in the back of my movie shelf and just knocked out seven of my movies. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, you have to watch those seven movies in order now. Right? I can't see what they are. Stop! Get I will throw this pillow at you. Okay. Back to it. Uh, so yes, that whole sequence from the interrogation to them going to the house and saving the girl. It's once uh, Bud, Russell Crowe, mm -hmm. is in that house, he sees that woman. Mm -hmm. That's his character. He wants to murder every woman beater on the planet. And his curiosity and intensity in that scene is so good. It's just... It's you know, that also it, it pulls, it points at something that either, you know, inspired casting something. I, again, I'm trying to say too many things at once, but Russell Crowe would go on to have the reputation for his intense yeah. anger, right? Yep. And that's something that we're tapping into here. Kevin Spacey would also go on to have a reputation for his creepy charm factor. And that's something that's being exploited here. I don't know Guy Pierce personally, but he's the perfect boy scout, boy scout if you just look at him. Yeah. So, I, you know, the casting is incredible. This movie works on every freaking level. Definitely. And I think my second favorite scene would have to be the final shootout. That's intense, man. Yeah, there's a lot, I a lot going on. I, I get why so when pierce shoots cromwell in the back mm -hmm. i don't know how i feel in that moment and i think that's where we need to be right well because, because he's pretty much breaking he is breaking the law by doing this yeah uh, and that isn't exley that's not his character he's always been the <clears throat> straight laced he turns in cops in the beginning for, no, that's. I think there's a different arc here. 
so it's not that he's breaking the law at that point. It's that he's having, he would have to be a lapdog to Cromwell thereafter because he has to break the law either way. So the arc of this thing is Guy Pierce becoming a real cop. It's not that he is like the good guy who's always going to be the Boy Scout and the right thing is the right thing forever. It's about him becoming a part, part of this fraternity and realizing what it takes to actually do this job. And I'm not trying to defend police or get into that conversation, but again, <laughs> just the arc of this movie, right? That's what he's doing. Yes. And so that moment where he shoots Cromwell in the back is really, really important because he needs to become Cromwell in order yeah, for him yeah. to- Him killing Cromwell is him killing Rolo Tomasi. It's- it's getting rid of that, uh, that vengeful reason why he started to become a detective. No, it's him becoming Rolo Tomasi. Guy Pierce becomes well, the man. He does become Rolo Tomasi because he gets away with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's about him needing to understand that it's not black and white. The world is made of a subtler shade of gray, right? It's, okay. it's that thing. And I think this movie really accomplishes it because of that last moment. I, I, I want him to shoot him, but I also don't want him to shoot him. And, you, you know. It, the Adventures of Captain Dudley and Lieutenant Exley. <laughs> I watched three seasons of that over 10 years. Like one episode at a time here and there. They tried to make a TV show. I think yeah. Darabont was a part of it. Oh, well, that's promising. I, I, I don't think it lasted. I think yeah. it was on for a season. Okay, I got another favorite scene. Okay. When Bud finds the bodies, right? And he for the takes, house? Yeah. And he, yeah, takes, Meeks, Meeks. Yeah, he takes Meek's wallet to get the ID, right? Mm-hmm. He takes the cash out of the wallet, but then he gives it to the old lady. Oh, <laughs> It's, you gotta love Bud, man. Bud White is a bad guy with a heart of gold. Yep, definitely. Yeah, um, so this whole movie, like I've said it before, it's all just dialed up just enough that, that yeah, gotta love it. I love this movie. Really, really did. I can't, um, yeah, I'm surprised that I didn't love it before. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, uh, it's perfect film in my opinion. And the movie really, like, it's entertaining from the get-go, but once the murders at the Night Owl happen, it, like, it kicks into fucking fourth gear and just keeps going. Like, there's just so much curiosity and the way they overlay the story and the, uh, the whole, uh, what's the, Fleur du Lis, the, mm-hmm. the, the prostitution ring. Yeah. And, uh, uh, Pierce Patchett, that whole story, just man. every it's got a place for everything, and everything is in its place exactly where it needs to be. Yep, you can't loosen a thread in this thing. There's nothing wasted. Mm-mm. It also uh, it does something that I really love specifically. It's not as like not every great movie has to do this, but when a movie can do this, I think we're in the territory of greatness. And it's when you get to the midpoint and you go, okay, well, now we're gonna find out how this thing wraps up. And yeah. then, like, oh no, there's another hour? Where are we going from here? 
And this has that when you get to the, the wrap up of the case, you know, Guy Pierce gets his first medal, right? And the, it, it, it is almost like a, um, like a, uh, a mirror, a folding, like a lateral symmetry. You know what I mean? This movie unfolds on itself really, really well. Mm-hmm. So that it mirrors itself just perfectly from front to back. Dig it. Really, really dig it. I agree. I think that's about it on my list to say. A lot of my notes are just kind of plot points that I just really like, and we've pretty much gone over them. Yeah, I mean, you know, if you're listening to this, you've hopefully seen the movie. Uh, And if you haven't, then I'm sorry we didn't keep it on the hush-hush. Oh, yeah, man. Dylan, thanks for helping me swing the wrecking ball. No worries. I love doing this. I can't wait for the next one. Yeah, so what do you want to do next? Oh, we got, so uh, Monday 420, should we, let's, let's go with that one, huh? Yep. Yeah. Um, yep. Cool. All right. I'm Dylan. Oh, yeah. Uh, I'm Kyle, and uh, this has been Made in the 90s.